0: Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organise and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook but sitting next to Notion it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to Notion.com slash squared, that's all lowercase letters, Notion.com slash squared lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action and when you use the link you're supporting Intelligence Squared 2. That's notion.com slash squared. Hello podcast listeners, I'm Connor, and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. This week we were joined by Scott Anderson, author of the new book The Quiet Americans, Four CIA Spies at the Dawn of the Cold War. And he spoke to journalist Hugo Lindgren about the inside story of American espionage. It's a really fascinating conversation and if you do enjoy it, you can find a link for Scott's book in the podcast description. Now, let's go to the episode.
1: Hello, I'm journalist and editor Hugo Lindgren. I'm here at the Intelligence Squared podcast with Scott Anderson. So Scott, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, well, I'm not gonna embarrass you, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell the audience a little bit about you if they haven't bought your book yet, which they obviously should do immediately. Scott is a veteran foreign, foreign correspondent and a war reporter. He's worked for many places, including the New York Times Magazine, where we knew each other a little bit a few years ago. His last book was Lawrence in Arabia about T.E. Lawrence, the infamous British intelligence officer. And Scott, why don't we just start with our super basic questions, to kind of bring everybody up to speed, including some who might not be familiar with the book yet. It's about the underpinnings of the United States sort of modern intelligence apparatus starting in and around World War II. Could you give us a quick overview of the ground you cover in the book? Yeah, I, I, fo- I
2: focus in on essentially a 12-year period from 1944 towards the end of the World War II through to the Hungarian Revolution in 1956. And I, I chose this period. Because in 1944, FDR was still president and he was talking about what was going to be the end of World War II, meant the end of the European colonial empires, the British and the French, they were causing so much disenchantment and rebellion throughout the developing world. And that also the United States was going to be this kind of uh, beacon of democracy. It was it was going to export democracy around the world. And he had this idea of the United Nations was going to be this transnational problem-solving agency. Fast forward to 12 years later, and by 1956, the United States is now actually bankrolling the British and French empires around the world. And in, in they're fighting insurgencies against communism and, and Asian and uh, and. In, in europe uh, Africa, and america's now overthrowing rather than spreading democracy we 're actually overthrowing democratic regimes in in Iran and guatemala so i I saw this this kind of twelve year period of the beginning of the Cold war as as really the the kind of solidified everything that was to come over over the next thirty five year history of of the cold war
1: now let's, I want to ask a really basic question is why does fdr 's vision not outlive him i mean it, it sounds you know, very consistent with where the country was coming out of World War II. This, you know, sort of heroic war, at least from the from the uh, from the perspective of the United States, liberating Europe from fascism. What's the What's the reason? What's wh- where's the switch? I think, in a
2: nutshell, it was that the, the American people in general, but especially Truman, when he comes in in, in April of 1945 the war was the war was over world war 2 was over the americans were demobilizing at the rate of 15,000 soldiers a day just coming coming home whereas the soviets they kind of saw world war 2 as round 1 <laughs> and now round right. 2 is the west and so very quickly they uh soviets they had they had conquered or liberated Eastern Europe, depending on one's perspective. They very quickly solidified those countries as part of the Soviet bloc. And so there's this very critical kind of two-year period where, to my mind, Truman and and American foreign policy in general was kind of asleep at the wheel. The focus was domestic and they they really weren't paying attention to what was happening around the world and and the, the kind of solidification of, of communist governments uh, throughout, especially in Eastern Europe.
1: So do you throw a lot of that on Truman? I mean, your portrait of him is not not very generous. Is that a big piece of it? His general sort of lack of qualifications for the job, his lack of worldliness, is that a big piece of it?
2: I, I To my mind, yes. I, I mean, I think that if you look at sort of turning points of American history, one particularly tragic crossroads was – Roosevelt dying when he did. He, you know, it's one of the great great what ifs. What you know, what if in the post war era Roosevelt had been there? Had he, would he have been able to deal with Stalin in a way that Truman just did not? I, I, I really feel that Truman was it was kind of a deer in headlights, and partly this is Roosevelt's fault too because Truman was kept completely in the dark. Uh, People around Roosevelt knew he was really ill and, frankly, dying for the, the last, certainly the last eight months of, before he died, and no effort was made to bring Truman on board to give him any sense of what was going on. Truman didn't know about the atomic bomb being developed, you know, for example, until the day after he became president. So I think Truman was really, he really was just kind of at sea in, in this really crucial, crucial point.
1: You described this pretty interesting moment with Truman, where he, I, I don't know if it was his first meeting with Stalin, but one of the early ones in any case, and he he's sort of impressed by him and has this kind of almost Trump-like kind of like gut reaction to him that he's like a man he can trust or something. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it was
2: it was their very first meeting. It was at Potsdam, the at Potsdam Conference, in, right in, in August of 1945. So, the war is just the war is still going on in in Asia, in, in Japan. It's just ended in Europe, and and Truman met. Stalin for the first time. and He wrote in his, in his personal diary, Stalin is honest. He, he's smart as hell, but I can deal with him. So in, in kind of like 12 words, kind of got three things wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: that old sort of folksy, folksy gut instinct. So in the early days, in the early post-war era, as the the Soviets kind of building up its military presence in in, in Eastern Europe, the United States is retracting the sort of intelligence operations, kind of stepping into the breach, in a sense. What's the goal? What's the aim? Like, what do the what do these these sort of young men who are charged with with running these intelligence operations? What, what are they trying to do? You know, it's a, it's a great question. I, I think they didn't really have clear direction.
2: And it, you know, one of the and, uh, one of the characters in my book, uh, Peter Sichel, and this really shows you just how clueless the Americans were of you know, the Soviets were very clear of what the new conflict was. And there was a tremendous element of wishful thinking on the Americans' part that somehow the wartime alliance with the Soviet Union will will continue in the post-war. So Peter Suchel is is, uh, sent to Berlin in the fall of 1945. So the war is just over. He's put in charge of the first Covert operations unit, a clandestine unit of of the American military in Berlin. Berlin now is like Ground Zero of the coming Cold War. So at that time, there's certainly hundreds, if not thousands, of Soviet intelligence agents running around uh, Berlin. Peter's unit is consists of nine guys, and he's heading it, and he's just turned twenty four. So it, it, you know, just there in a nutshell, just tells you how how completely ill equipped the Americans were of what was coming. So what you start seeing is. Guys like Peter and other people in the field, they're, they're reporting back to Washington. Hey, the, the, the Soviets are taking over all these countries. They're, they're undermining the, 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 the political parties. They're using all these strong-arm tactics. And it, it, for this crucial period, it, it's like Washington just didn't want to hear it or, or, or it couldn't figure out how to counteract it anyway. Because, again, we're demobilizing our military at this incredible rate.
1: So one of the things that Secchiell gets up to in Berlin is making connections with with a bunch of former Nazis and in at least at least one big example but but I think others as well making deals with them and and using their sort of expertise and their contacts to to further their own sort of intelligence operations. Can you talk about that a little bit? I mean this is an area where there's a lot of sort of general awareness of it I think but but you have some real real sort of specific Cases in the book of sort of uh, collaborating with ex Nazis.
2: Yeah, there's there this kind of gradual process of the the, the the use of the Nazis in the post-war era. If they were first, you know, basically Germany was prostrate at the end of the war, and and the Americans first came in with this idea that anybody had ser- who had served in any role who had been a member of the Nazi Party was now going to be effectively banned. Essentially, what what George George Bush uh, did in Iraq. Of, of de bathification of, of, of Iraq very quickly turned unworkable because you know any, anybody who, had, who was running anything in, in Nazi Germany were not members of the Nazi Party. So very quickly right. they start working with you know with, with former Nazi uh, Party members. That became especially true with intelligence because to find out what was happening in Eastern Europe, Americans had nobody during the war. It was it was. Aware of what was happening in the Soviet Union or in Eastern Europe, so they start using these former German military intelligence officers, and then it just kind of becomes this gradual process that, you know, first you're using them just for analysis, but then you're using them for operations um, to the point where the the CIA inherited a bunch of these guys from the Army Counterintelligence Corps. And now you're all of a sudden you're dealing with with some really bona fide you know really creepy characters that, and guys wanted for war crimes uh, in, the, in the particular case of Peter Sichel um, and, and this is what's kind of interesting in this is that Peter was actually a, uh, from a German Jewish family. His family had fled in the mid 1930s when, when Hitler came to power. They got to the States. And so because Hitler uh, was obviously a a fluent German speaker is one of the reasons he was being put into Berlin. Um, So here is a uh, one thing Peter told me. uh, He's still alive. and, And I did a series of interviews with him. He said, you know, whenever I would try to recruit a German, they always wanted to have, quote, the conversation with me. And that conversation being, you know, I was always against Hitler. You know, I, I hid Jews in my basement. And, and Peter, Peter said, as soon as we would start in, I would say, stop. I don't, I don't want to hear, hear it. What, what you did during the war is between you and your conscience. From, you know, from now on, you, I just want you to be on our side and be a good German. So he had this kind of amazing ability to sort of put out of his mind, the the past of these people which is probably what made him such a good spy master but it also set him on this path where and one particularly notorious nazi war criminal he helped he basically helped come up with this false identity to help him get out of germany into the united states and this man his name was otto von bolschwing ended up in a, you know 40 years later being uh, investigated by the office of special investigations of the justice department for nazi war crimes 40 years later after after living in the United States. That's right. He was in the States for about 40 years, stripped of his citizenship. He was about to be deported when he, when he died of, of brain cancer. But really, uh, this guy was really a, a nasty piece of work. And I had this interview with, with Peter where I was talking about the use of, of Nazis. And, and I, I kind of reached up to the point where I wanted to ask him specifically about this von yeah. Bolschwing. Because I had Peter's name on documents that you know, kind of helping hide this guy's identity from from Nazi war crime hunters, and I just kind of couldn't bring myself to, to kind of pin him to it. I, you know, here's a 97 year old man; very easy for us or for me, 70 years later, to kind of stand in judgment of of what these guys, the situation that they were in, and there was this uh, there was this moment where Peter absolutely knew where where I was going, and he, he's and he just said. You know, back then I did things that I wouldn't do now. I believed in things that I don't believe now, and they said, "That's it." <laughs> and I was just like,
1: "So Cut. you let you let it go there? You didn't you didn't press him any further
2: than I, that?" I just, you know, it, it's one of my it's one of my failings as a journalist. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, we're trained to like, you know, that's that's the little. That's the niche. You just you drive, you drive your stiletto in, and you and you see what happens. And but I guess you know my my sense of just being a decent person that kind of won out. I mean, here is it. Here is a 97 year old man who obviously has lived with this in some form on, on his conscience all these years, and he has created a narrative for himself to kind of explain it. And
1: it's like you know, who am I to kind and, of in come a sense, along? They're, they're there's not a there's not a mystery about it. You had the documents. You knew what he did. Yeah. So there wasn't there wasn't a piece of information that was missing. No, you know,
2: no. right? No, and I think you know. I mean, you know, if you're in this, you know, when when you're talking about spy war, spy wars, I mean, you get into bed with some pretty unsavory characters all all the time, and it's. I mean, I think that this is one of the kind of moral things that that eventually eats away at people. Is that there's this political expedience that you have to go along with, that, and at a certain point, maybe you reach a point where you just can't do it anymore. But you're always thinking about, you know, it's it, it's the ultimate end
1: justifies the means. Now in Berlin in the sort of mid and late '40s, Seychelles has his sort of nine men. He's running these ops. He's trying to recruit sort of double agents and and sources and spies with on the on the sort of Soviet side of things. And reading your book, oh. Uh, I'm struck by just how it just feels like one colossal blunder or failure after another. I mean, there's just all their little networks getting rolled up, you know, where they think they're getting stuff, but actually everybody's a double agent and they're, you know, it's, it's, what are the, what are the success stories that they built the great tradition of the American intelligence operation <laughs> right. on? What, where, where were the moments where they're like, oh, finally, we got this one, we got this one right?
2: Right. I, I mean, very very few and far between, and in in certainly in Eastern Europe. In Eastern Europe was just kind of a, a you know an unmitigated disaster. Um, one thing that you you mentioned about the, the there's it was in 1946, so Peter had just been in, Peter Stettel had just been in Berlin for a year they were trying to get a sense what's called an order of battle they were trying to find out just how militarily prepared the soviet red army was in eastern germany you know did they have like offensive plans so they rolled out these huge chains of agents all through agents and subagents uh, throughout eastern germany east berlin and they thought they were getting great material and then literally in a 48 hour period all their chains disappeared the, the soviets had been watching them all along everybody everybody got Pulled up, and this this was kind of a pattern. You know, also with when they were doing these these commando operations behind the Iron Curtain of dropping anti communist partisans behind the lines, the Soviets saw in in some cases these these anti communist emigre groups were so infiltrated by the by the Soviets. That they, that they were waiting for him on the ground when these guys parachuted in. Uh, almost all these operations were, were just uh, complete disasters. Probably a bit more successful in Asia, uh, than, certainly than in, than in Eastern Europe. But what you saw time and again was it was the whole culture of secrecy in the, in, in the Soviet Union in particular, but in the communist world in general. The CIA was just caught completely flat-floated, never, you know, never saw the North Korean invasion of South Korea coming in 1950, thought that the Soviets were still like three, three years away from develop, developing an atomic bomb when they actually got it. And one thing that stunned me, I just had no, no clue of this, the CIA had nobody they had no informant anywhere inside this the soviet hierarchy uh, around stalin and, and not even like you know a fifth tier bureaucrat in the ministry of agriculture i mean nobody for, let alone you know someone close to the kremlin who could could kind of gauge what might be coming next so they really were operating in the dark
1: and, and meanwhile the soviets i mean the the head of i'm not i guess he wasn't the head but but the i'm forgetting his first name philby oh kim, um, kim philby yeah Kim Philby was was I, I mean in on in on some of the most confidential U.S. operations too. I mean he was he was Soviet agent, so it's it does seem like incredible disproportionate, incredibly evidence. disproportionate.
0: Yeah,
2: Kim Philby he was the British intelligence liaison to the American intelligence, so he was in this. He was based in Washington during this really critical period, and he had access to everything. Uh, he had you know he he had the minutes of the top secret conversations going on between the American and British heads of state knew all about the the, the nuclear programs that, that were being developed the interesting thing with philby is when all these operations he got unmasked finally in, in the early 1950s he kind of became the dumping ground for the, the these anti these anti communist commando operations that that had been going all th- through eastern europe that had all been disasters when philby was unmasked all the, all these failures kind of got dumped on him right it's all his fault
1: right
2: when an actual fact or certainly the probability is that he was so high up the soviets were not using him for these these to 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 report on these commando operations going they had those already wrapped up i mean they used him for this very high end stuff you know between between truman and and the you know the, the british prime minister
1: it seems almost crazy to to ask the question this way but what would have been different if like the United States had done almost nothing I mean it, it, it does seem that the it, it's it's like a net negative their influence on the sort of course of events and if if in in addition to sort of pulling back militarily we just like pulled you know or not developed our intelligence apparatus the way we did what what would have been different what?
2: You know it 's it's, it's a great question i 'll answer in two ways one what you do see in the early post war period is for instance, like in Italy in one thousand nine hundred and forty eight they were having elections. It looked like actually the Communist Party of Italy might win and and then might take Italy into the Soviet orbit. The CIA launched this massive uh, sort of subterranean funding of the Social Democrats and Christian Democrats. And managed to kind of defeat the communists at the ballot box. Similarly, there, you know, probably in, in the communist party at one time in France was really powerful. So there may have been this kind of defensive capability that they had, you know, during the containment policy, that may have had a, 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 I mean, from our vantage point, a positive influence in in what in Western Europe. Um, yeah, but by and large, uh, not much. The, the the other great irony with the CIA of all these different, there was this whole gamut of uh, programs the CIA was running from the 1940s through the 1960s. Everything from, you know, kind of hard power of overthrowing governments, but also this soft power of, of Radio Free Europe, Voice of America, these cultural programs that they were operating all through uh, Western Europe and the. 40s and 50s. Overseas Library Program, which was, which was a CIA operation funneled through the State Department. It was literally just setting up these massive libraries, you know, all through Western Europe where, you know, people come in off the street and, and you know, check out books and stuff. Those were probably the most effective. I mean, this is a great irony. It's kind of, Libraries were more effective than bombs to, in, in this idea of spreading, you know, kind of American cultural and, and, and cultural
1: going to political influence around the world. And certainly more effective than spies too. I mean, not just the bombs, but the. Um, what's the biggest in the course of your reporting? What's a, what did you, what did you learn that was sort of a, about the the nature of, of intelligence and U.S. intelligence in particular that changed your mind? Like, were there any sort of preconceptions you had or or basic understandings that were proven wrong or at least substantially different by, by the stories you unearthed? Probably
2: the biggest takeaway I came f- away with was I had no idea just this this almost daily onslaught of events from the end of World War II, of, uh, you know, certainly through the rest of the 1940s, virtually, I mean, not every day, but every third day, <laughs> to be honest, some kind of cataclysmic thing was happening around the world. and. I think America just didn't know how to kind of respond. They were they were really overwhelmed by events. You know, America. You remember, America was still a very isolationist country. You know, even through World War II. So, if, if something's happening in, in West Africa, you know, there's very few people, even in the State Department, who can find that country on a map. So, I there there was this thing of of being just overwhelmed by events and i think also i as i mentioned earlier i you know i was stunned at the, the lack of of awareness of what they had the knowledge they had of what was happening inside the soviet union i can now understand better why these guys were, you know couldn't sleep at night of wondering what was coming next because on the other side of that iron curtain at least until 1953 you have a guy like stalin who's essentially a Paranoid sociopath, and you don't know what he's capable of doing next, or even what he's thinking of doing next. So, I, I, I think I have a new appreciation for just how in the dark and what a, what a scary time this must have been for people.
1: Now, you present in the sort of early days of Khrushchev's reign, I guess is the right word. There's sort of a critical moment in Hungary where where uh, the Soviets clamped down hard on the on the sort of the the, the sort of nascent rebellion there. And there's kind of an opportunity for the American government to respond and to, to to respond with strength, and they don't. Can you can you talk about that a little bit and why that's such a why that's such a big moment? Um, is that 1955
2: 56? And- yeah, 56. 56 right, yeah. Okay. So just to back up a little bit on that, where I in, where the yes. subtitle comes from, a tragedy in three acts. The third act of this tragedy. Being when the Eisenhower administration comes in, and John Foster Dulles is the Secretary of State, and he's this ultra right wing, you know, hardcore ideologue, who has this notion that you, you know any any sign of any sign of approachment coming from from Moscow is a sign. It's either a sign of their duplicity or a sign of their weakness, or both at the same time. So, how whatever Khrushchev does. If it's a, if it's an aggressive act, if it's if it's if it's an olive branch he's he's you know offering, you resist it, you fight back. So, and this is also the period, of course, when it, the Americans overthrow the democratic government in Iran. Then in Guatemala, these were both you know the early years of, of Eisenhower. Meanwhile, the Eisenhower administration is just continuing with this propaganda of, of, of they're going to roll back communism. They're going to liberate the, you know, the so-called captive nations of Eastern Europe. And there's this constant drumbeat of, of liberation. So then what happens in Hungary in, in, uh, in, in October of 1956 is there actually is a spontaneous anti-communist uprising. Again, CIA never saw it coming. It certainly did not. Certainly did not have a hand in in provoking it, and it just blows up literally overnight. And it reaches a point where, after about seven days into the revolution, where Khrushchev and the Politburo decide, you know, we have to we have to pull out. We we the only way to put this down is by by force, and and we can't do that. So on this critical meeting of the Politburo, October thirty first, nineteen fifty six. Khrushchev says, we're, we're pulling out. He has a very sleepless night. <laughs> he gets up the next morning and thinks, you know what? We don't have to give up Hungary. Because if the Americans were going to do something, they would have done it by now. The Americans aren't going aren't to come in to help them. So the very next day, Khrushchev... Ordered the tanks to turn around and go back into Budapest, the capital, and and the revolution was crushed. So the the American the Eisenhower administration played this really cynical game of having, done you know constantly stoked up the the idea that that, that, that there's going to be rebellion, we're going to come to your aid, and then when it happens they go oh you know sorry you're on your own. And I I interviewed he he's since died but one of the last. American journalist who was, who was in Budapest uh, during the revolution, a guy named uh, Timothy Foote, he describes this awful moment. It was in the last day of the revolution where the, the Soviet tanks have come back in and they've pushed the, the rebels or the freedom fighters uh, into this tiny pocket in downtown Budapest. And he, and he was there and all of a sudden he hears people cheering and you know, it really happily cheered. And he turns to a, a fighter. He's he's in a he's in an apartment building next to him. And he says, "What well, you know, what's going on?" He says, "Oh, we just heard the Americans have come across the border. And, you know, the Americans are on their way to 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 help us." And of course, it wasn't true. And so, you know, within a few hours, all those people were, you know were either killed or, or captured.
1: So, how close do you think the Americans were to to actually putting troops on the ground or in airplanes? I mean, was it was it touch and go, or was it just never really on the no. table? No. You
2: see, the other thing, well, when Eisenhower came in, he initiated this, and, and this, this is kind of a central core idea to the book, is that when, when Eisenhower came in, he established this thing called the New Look Doctrine. And the New Look Doctrine was basically that the United States reserved the right to, to, to massively retaliate, if they felt its national, if its foreign, if its vital foreign policy interests were at stake, so basically that was a euphemism for a nuclear first strike that America now reserved the right. It never been stated before, but we reserve the right to do a nuclear first right. So, of course, the Soviets immediately came out and, and said, <laughs> said the same thing on their right. own side. Right. What nobody kind of put together, I mean, I, it's astonishing. I, I've, I just found no documentation of people looking at the New Look Doctrine that anyone kind of put this together. It did two things simultaneously. Number one, it, it's, it locked into place the Iron Curtain in Eastern Europe, the Soviets now could never, you know, invade Germany um, because that was to, you know, vital to our national security interests. So it would invite a nuclear first strike. Likewise, the Americans couldn't go into Hungary because that was in the Soviets, you know, strategic sphere. So, the, and then the other thing that Nieluk did was that, having solidified into place East Europe, it opened up the entire rest of the world as the playground, for, because now you could now you could create mischief in all these other countries that were not you know of vital strategic interest to either superpower so it had the effect simultaneously of locking europe into place and opening up the whole rest of the world to the cold war
1: so this brings us to vietnam and to that's right uh, that's right and so i think
2: you know what happened when hungary blew up is eisenhower and john foster dolles and his closest advisors sat there and thought oh wait a minute <laughs> you know we've we've done everything possible to promote exactly this thing to happen. But if we do anything about it now, we're, to, we're going to be flirting with a nuclear war. So they just, like, wash their heads.
1: At one point, you described the CIA as the ultimate fall guy. Can you explain what you mean by that?
2: Yeah. You, know, you asked me earlier if there was anything that kind of surprised me. I'd say one thing that really did surprise me is that, it, not just in the time period I'm looking at, this 12-year period, but kind of going through the CIA's history all, you know, up to the present day. There's this idea of the agency being this, this, this kind of rogue operation at, at, at different key moments in, in its history, you know, that, that operates on its own. And this is an idea <laughs> that our current president is actively promoting. But in fact, the, the agency always operated with the tac at least the tacit uh, approval, if not the instigation of the American president. So if you look at almost any... Certainly, any major operation uh, throughout the agency's history, it was all do- it was all done at the behest of of the sitting American president. But it, within the CIA's doctrine is this doctrine of plausible deniability. So, so one of their whole reasons for being is to take the blame. So, if 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 you know Bay of Pigs, for example, blows up and it's a big fiasco, well, it's the CIA's fiasco. It's not John F. Kennedy's fiasco. And th- and this has been you, you know. WMDs in Iraq in, in 2003. Uh, the, the Bush administration did everything possible to, to push the agency to find the, the existence of WMDs. It, it, in fact, within the agency, there was a huge t- debate going on whether they actually existed or not. Of course, they weren't there, didn't exist. But you know, who takes, who takes the fall for it? It's, "Oh, the, you know the agency let us down." That is the agency's role uh, is, to, is to take blame.
1: One of the things that struck me about your your four characters is that sort of each of them comes across, you know, as sort of a decent person, you know, not a not a not a villain, not a fool, not a not a sort of power hungry madman, and yet their legacy is is sort of astonishingly, I mean, I guess it's just depressing. I mean, the 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 these very talented, very in most cases, very well-educated. I mean, they were sort of the, for the, the term that's used later, the best and the brightest, and they spend their, you know, entire careers, you know, ultimately, you know, sort of betraying America's better values. It, it's, it's, it's kind of sobering.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's, um, and I think it's one of the reasons why, well, one of them committed suicide. And then, and two of them quit. Two of them quit the CIA. And I, th- I think it was seeing. In one case of the two men who who quit, one was just seeing the utter futility on the ground of the of the operations he was involved in. There's a guy who was uh, kind of orchestrating the, the 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 you know the dropping of of guerrillas behind the Iron Curtain. Just saw hundreds of of people just you know parachute to their deaths. in the case of Peter Sichel, the reason he quit or kind of reached his breaking point is he had seen all these operations be such disasters in, in, in Eastern Europe. He was the CIA station chief in Hong Kong in 1960, right when East Asia is starting to kind of perk up. Uh, he was at a meeting of CIA station chiefs in in the Philippines, where the new number two guy of the CIA, the head of covert operations, comes out and he goes, "Hey, we're, we're launching a new you know a new operation. We're going to be dropping anti communist Chinese <laughs> into into Mao's China. Uh, it's going to be a hundred million dollar operation. We're going to you know, be dropping uh, you know hundreds if not thousands of guys behind the lines." And during a break in this conference, Peter took this the, the, the number two guy aside and said, "You know, we would." We'd save so much time and money if we just killed them ourselves," he said. "This is going to be a disaster, just like it was in Eastern Europe." And then he said, "I'm out. I'm, I quit." And he and he, he quit the agency just like right there. You know, individually, they kind of reached points where they 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 either broke or
1: they you know you just keep going going along with it. So they they also had problems, sort of domestically, politically in the United States, with particularly with McCarthy and the and the Red Scare. Maybe maybe you could. Describe a little bit of some of those details because that was another stunning part of the book. The, you know, these guys are out there in the field, you know, sort of overmatched and, and undermanned. And, (laughs) um, and then, and then meanwhile, they're, they're, you know, being called traitors back at home by, by McCarthy, by some of the other, by some of his allies. Tell us a little bit about
2: that. Yeah, this I, this I, this was a huge uh, influence on all the all all four of them. All four of these men, and and this is very true of the early CIA. It, it, they it, I write write about only one of them was really kind of in an Ivy League, but they it tended to draw very heavily from the Ivy League. Most early CIA officers were were politically liberal, certainly very socially liberal, and certainly all four of them. And I write about it, and and throughout. The CIA of other people, I, you know, saw things they had written from the time. To a man appalled by the the Red Scare that was, you know, that was promoted by Joe McCarthy uh, starting in 1950, and and really McCarthy was kind of the front man for J Edgar Hoover. J Edgar Hoover was the was the guy who was funneling these these you know, confidential files to McCarthy, who would then come out with them publicly, and and they saw the effect that the the Red Scare, which was really a witch hunt. What that the effect that was having on on American standing, moral standing, and prestige abroad, and especially maybe in in Europe, you know, Europeans, Western Europeans, just like you know, what are Americans doing? And on a personal level, two of the four guys I'm I'm writing about, both Peter Suchel being one of them, were both investigated by the FBI as potential communist spies, and. and the, the The great irony is in in Peter's case is that he had he would seen so many of these commando operations be so disastrous he had started sh- shutting these operations down because it was just it, you know it was it was mass suicide essentially sending these people over uh, the, the CIA f- officers in the field who who were wanted to push these programs and were and they were either getting shut down by Peter Schell started sending, you know, it's like, well, why is this guy, you know, keep closing down our operations that I know this time is going to work? <laughs> you know? uh, so the fact that he was shutting down so many of these disastrous operations was what made him fall under suspicion as a potential KGB right. mole.
0: promo code, Squared, to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared.
1: As we're talking, it's 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 September 10th. The President of the United States has been in the news quite a bit. As he always is, and one of the things that's been been front and center is is some of his comments about the military, and and in the discussion of that, people say, well, you know, he's lost the military, and you know, he previously lost the intelligence community. That's like a just a sort of a talking point that people that, that's out there. What do you think that means that the president has lost the intelligence community, and and uh, do you agree with that, and and what would the consequences of that be, the president being having lost the intelligence. Game. Yeah.
2: Oh, we've we've never we've never been in this situation before. You know, one thing certainly in people that I've talked to within the agency the last few years, they see Putin's Russia as as an inherently adversarial nation to the to the United States. We, we are not we're not friends. We are not we're certainly not allies. We it is an inherently adversarial relationship. I think that they are Every, everybody I've ever talked to in the agency, they are both deeply alarmed and deeply suspicious of why we have a president who, who, who steadfastly refuses to acknowledge that. You know, the, Trump's talk about oh, the deep state conspiracy, that doesn't really bother them. I, I think they know that's kind of politics and this is, it's, it's posturing. But definitely what, what really worries them uh, to a man and to a woman is is this utter refusal to recognize what the the, the fundamental relationship is between you know the United States and Russia and we we see it we see it acted out virtually daily uh, you know the fact that the American president has not come out and said anything about the the, the attempted murder of of Navalny you know two weeks ago the you know the poisoning that was clearly carried out by the the Russian secret police. Um, you know how can an american president you know not respond to that but he hasn't responded to to any of the other stuff including the you know the fact that the russians were giving bounties to, to taliban fighters to kill americans <laughs> how can an american president not talk about that it's, it's so that's pretty astonishing
1: does, does all of this feel kind of fixable to you? I mean, is this is this one of those? I mean, that I think that's the big question around people have around around Trump is that you know four years of of weakening of American institutions and capabilities is it something that can be turned around by a by a different president fairly quickly? Is it is there is there long-term damage? What's your what's your sense on that?
2: I think some of it can be turned around very quickly. You know, and I'm, I'm reminded of when Obama came in. You know, and t- took over from Bush. I mean, if if you remember, you know, Bush was pretty universally despised, certainly in Europe. By the time he was gone, and so Obama comes in, and and he's a rock star. You know, the Europeans love him. I think he had higher approval ratings in Europe than he had in the states. So I think a lot. You know, there's a lot of the world out there that is waiting to to America to. to from their vantage point you know to to kind of get their act together and and to come back to what it once was and, and to renew nato to 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 be supportive of the european union instead of trying to you know do everything possible to dismantle it to to return to that the the kind of adversarial relationship with russia on a long-term basis though i think that what is deeply corrosive about this administration is in the eyes of other people around the world is like that well, the Americans elected somebody like Trump once. What's going to prevent them from electing somebody like him again? And on a large level, and this even kind of transcends Trump. But I think one thing that Americans, you know, all around the world, the view the view that people have of America in general as a, as a power is that you can wait them out. You you know, all, all you do, you just play beat the clock with the Americans, and eventually they're going to get tired and go home. And and you know. Certainly, that was Stalin's idea <laughs> in 1945. It's like the Americans are going to pack up and go home, and they're going to leave the, the, the playing field to us. Uh, We're about to see it play out in, in Afghanistan. It, you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's in the works. You know, Americans, just like we did in Vietnam, we're looking for a, you know, quote, decent interval so that we can kind of say, oh, our job here is done. We're going to leave. And then hopefully there's a decent interval before the whole thing goes down the toilet. And that's that's the all the American it's policy. Been Twenty years in Afghanistan,
1: though. I mean, that is a. Yeah, that's yeah, true. That's, that's pretty, true. But it's been it's a you know, long
2: road. That that has been, and, and but it's been very, and it's it's probably you know, and as as was Vietnam, we seem to do one or the other. We we either like you know, like go in very quickly and pull out, and then and then they're stunned that the whole thing falls apart. Or yeah, we we or we stand forever and, and can't figure out how to get out. But but certainly the you know the so called American solution in Afghanistan is going to look almost exactly like the solution in Vietnam.
1: Since you do know a lot about Afghanistan, what I guess I'm confused. I, I understand. I feel fairly well why uh, Obama doesn't close Gitmo. Like I, I I I don't agree with it, but I understand it. I, I'm not sure. I do understand why Trump doesn't have the troops out of Afghanistan.
2: I think it's, he doesn't want the embarrassment on his watch of watching the Taliban take over. You know, I, the 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 awful thing of Afghanistan is after all the deaths, all the destruction, we're going to end up you know, right back where we were almost 20 years ago. Once the Americans, you know, pull out altogether, um, I, you know, I I give it a matter of months before the Taliban takes over, and then and then you potentially have another. You know, so-called rogue state in in, you know, in the middle of Central Asia that could that, because when we when we leave, we're going to leave completely, and we're not going to have eyes and ears on the ground. And so, you know, the idea of a, another Al Qaeda or,
1: or ISIS coming along and using Afghanistan as a base—it's it's a distinct possibility. So, I would, from reading your book, I would say that the the influence of the CIA on world events generally is hugely overrated. <laughs> I would say that's a conclusion of your book. Correct me if I'm wrong. What do you think about the CIA is underrated? Like, what do we not? What are their capabilities or their aims or things that we 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 may not appreciate enough or know enough about?
2: It's, it's a really good question. Kennedy had this said. You know, the thing about intelligence agencies is that their their failures are very public and their successes are unknown. And I think that that's largely true with the CIA, is, is if, if something is successful, you just never really hear about it. So, I, you know, I think that they've probably been fairly effective in certain places, again, certain places in Asia, certainly in Africa. But it's, it's, I'm kind of hard, you know, hard pressed to say what like to point to something on a major level. Well, again, you know, this goes this goes <laughs> way back. Presumably, they've had a success, you know, before this. But you know, I, I mentioned the Italian elections in 1948. That, that it, it was this it was a very comprehensive program designed to neutralize the the legal legal Communist Party. America had a doctrine: we don't interfere in the elections of of other democracies. That went by, by the wayside in in forty eight, as as, ha, as it has in other countries since. You know, and I was I was thinking, you know, the countries I grew up in, Taiwan and South Korea, which had a huge both American military and a, American intelligence involvement. You know, th- certainly throughout the sixties and seventies, kind of success stories. But is it a success? You can, you know, they're they're both functioning democracies now. But is that something? I've never had the sense that that was something that the CIA or the American government you know actively pushed those those countries to do I mean it came about I think much more organically so Long, long, long way around to your to your question. I think the answer is you you often just don't know what (laughs) where they've been successful. So we're
1: (laughs) we're back to where we started from in a sense. Maybe the influence on world events is not not overrated. Exactly. Um, um, So I want to I want to close by asking for a recommendation. First of all, I want to make sure I I give a a recommendation in terms of your book because I think what's what's really truly wonderful about it is it, it it has a it's it's very much engaged in in the nitty gritty and the history of of the United States and the mid century but it 's also just a really sort of excellent kind of adventure story with with a lot of different characters and and a lot of really cool areas of the world and and it 's just an exciting reading experience so I want to make sure people know that too this is not this is not Scott does not press your you know nose up against all these depressing facts and force you to acknowledge them it's 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 really a, it's it's really a very a really pleasurable reading experience but i want to ask you for a recommendation i i guess personally what i would most want to know is is there a great spy novel that you love and you you, you i'm going to ask you not to pick one of the obvious ones i might even have to take john le carre off the table But is there is there a work of fiction or nonfiction that you think gets aspects of this world right or that you just think is something people should uh, should read?
2: You know, one of my all time favorite books, I I suppose it's a spy book is Our Man in Havana by Graham Greene. It's just, of course, Graham Greene was he was an intelligence officer, uh, but it really gets to it's just a wonderful book. It's a it's a it's funny, but funny in a very acerbic, (laughs) dark way and it, it it i not to give anything away about it but it basically a, a guy starts cooking information that he's sending back to london to, to basically raise money and, and he kind of he, the, the more information he sends the more it becomes this, this kind of you know vital national security concern of what's happening in havana and it's, and it's and it it does get to something about the absurdity of that whole this the, the spy world and how things, how information can be manufactured. And I, but I, from a from a more realistic standpoint, even though you took him off the table, I would have to say, Lacare, Lacare really does again another former intelligence officer. But the this, the 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 sadness, the the and the solitude of being a spy, being a double agent, having a secret life, and, and as alienating as that is, it sounds very cool when you're on the outside. But you know, you're, you're, it creates a distance between you and everyone around you, including your own family. And I, I Lacare, really gets that.
1: Is there one? Is there one that, that that stands out in your mind as a as a personal favorite?
2: Probably Tinker, Tailor, Soldier, Spy. I, I would think.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Wow, you really. Um, well, I I mean, I have to agree. But uh, it's it's uh, if, if you haven't read it yet, you really you really. You have to read Scott's book first, but then you can get to the (laughs) on the spot. (laughs) Anyway, Scott, thanks a lot. This has been really a lot of fun, and appreciate you joining us. This has been the Intelligence Squared podcast with Scott Anderson. He is the author of The Quiet Americans, a new book about the history of the American intelligence sort of apparatus. It's it's a terrific book, and uh, uh, thank you very much, Scott. I really appreciate it.
2: Thanks so much, Hugh. I really appreciate it.